Hello and welcome to A Year with the Beatles, a limited series of podcasts exploring virtually every studio album by the Beatles month by month. My name is Graham Burke and I'm joined by music critic and writer of the blog The Delete Bin, Rob Jones. Hi Rob. Hi Graham. Now, shortly before we got together to talk about A Hard Day's Night, we learned about the sad news of George Martin's passing at the age of 90. Martin was such an influential figure, not just for the Beatles, but for popular music in the second half of the 20th century. So this is a short mini episode, sort of a, an appendix to our third episode, if you will, uh, for us to talk a little bit more in depth about George Martin and his contribution. So I know this is a bit of a big question, Rob, but what was it about George Martin that made him so influential to popular music? That is a big question, Graham, and I will attempt to answer it by saying that I think the first thing was he basically invented the job of the producer in the way that we understand it today. Uh, I think that's probably his, his biggest contribution. Also, his way of uh, allowing the artists to lead. I think that was a huge, huge area that he basically was one of the pioneers of, just letting the, the artists lead the creative way to support that along the way as opposed to being the sort of right guys you know we're not we're now going to make a record uh you stand here you stand here and then you know press record and you know then you have your record george martin uh he asked a lot of questions uh he could admit when he was wrong about things he kept an open mind he was uh, an intuitive person as well and all of this sort of and many other areas as well but all of this sort of culminated in, in his being able to basically invent how we understand uh, the role of the producer, certainly in rock music today. It's interesting because I think part of it is in what he was doing before he did the Beatles. And for the purposes of demonstration, I'm going to play a short clip. This is busy High Street, focal point of the town's activity. Note the quaint old stores whose frontage is covered with hand-painted inscriptions, every one a rare example of native Balham art. Let us read some of them as our camera travels past. Cooking apples, choice eaters. A song to remember at the Tandemount Cinema. A suit to remember at Montague Moss. Emotions conducted with decorum and taste. Friday night, bring your own paper. Rally Thursday, Barclay Square. Viscountess Lewisham and Mrs. Gerald Legg. Up the ruling classes. So that was a clip from uh, one of Peter Sellers' comedy albums from 1957, and George Martin produced this. And I think one of the things that really sort of he brought to bear with the Beatles and then with music in general was that he had his roots in producing comedy records and especially stuff for the, for sellers and the goons uh, who had a very definite sense of what they wanted in terms of what they wanted in terms of sound effects or what they wanted in terms of music and so he worked with them uh, on a couple of albums and and i know from doing comedy sketches on my own podcast reality bomb that in terms of the production side of it it's all about creating the perf uh, a pastiche that you know brings about the world like in that clip you know he used is the right blend of travelogue music and, and sound effects and, and just sort of creates that kind of world that he can make the joke with. And I think that sense of pastiche and that sense of play is what he basically brought in with the Beatles. So he sort of said, you know, yeah, we can create this record and do this song, but if we use these instruments, what if we did this? And I think that's something that more comes from a comedy producing background than necessarily even a classical music background, which I think everyone sort of said in his obituaries. And I think another important aspect of that 
that is the fact that in comedy, uh, as well as in music, uh, timing is so important. And having uh, someone behind the boards who kind of understands that part of it, I think, was a hugely advantageous when Martin came to uh, produce a, a rock group, which he'd never done before. Uh, the Beatles was his first rock group, you know, and I think a lot of the and the fact that the Beatles were fans of the goons as well, uh, particularly uh, John Lennon and uh, George Harrison. They were they were both goons fans. That created an instant rapport as well, which I don't think can be uh, overestimated, you know. No, I don't. And I, and I think you listen to a lot of the Beatles stuff from particularly the time when they really start bringing Martin to bear in the mid to late 60s. You know, there's tunes on White Album where you just got to know that there's the comedy producer saying, oh, yeah, you want to do a pastiche of a, of a 40s torch song? Yeah, sure. We can we can do this instrumentation here. Yeah. Even if even if it was the Beatles coming up with those ideas on their own, Martin knew how to create a sonic environment to make those things sound authentic. And I, I think that that's another uh, aspect of his of his talent. Oh, absolutely. Now, each of us brought a piece of music that we thought demonstrated Martin's influence on the Beatles. And how about I start? So mine is a two part clip. OK, <laughs> so here's the first part. Why is she? So that's the Beatles live in Germany in 1965 performing Yesterday as though we were just another Beatles song with electric guitar and bass and drums. And, and now here's the version we all know. Why she had to go, I don't know, she wouldn't say. I said something. And that's the version that Paul McCartney did with George Martin in 1965 as part of the Help album. And for me, it's not just about the radical use of a string quartet. It's about the fact that he, the sound is so lush. It's a kind of sonic environment you're talking about, Rob. It's, it's, yeah. He really brings the kind of emotional core of the song to the fore by suggesting an instrumentation. I think that was one of the biggest innovations he ever made with the Beatles was just sort of not just getting them to use classical instruments, but to use it in a very deliberately targeted way. And it could have gone sideways, too. And I think that that was one of the reasons why uh, McCartney was resistant to the idea of adding strings because he thought, oh, it's going to be like Percy Faith's A Summer Place or something like that or, you know, or uh, Montabani or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't want it to sound like, you know, elevator music because remember the, the Beatles, you know, they still prided themselves on being a rock and roll band, you know, uh, a little R&B group as, as uh, Paul came to call it later on. So they didn't want to didn't want to muck it up. It's to George Martin's credit that he he added that texture and it didn't sound anything like, you know, what what McCartney feared it would be, which is, you know, really saccharine and kind of, you know, over overwrought. Uh, it, it, it's it's tasteful and it it's uh, and it I think, too, it, it has a certain organic sort of quality to it, I think, you know, it doesn't sound like, you know, a process thing where it's you know meant to kind of 
sand off the edges of the song it uh, it helps the song along you know and i think martin uh, because he had such a great ear which is a huge advantage as well and and i don't think that can be uh, overestimated either the fact that he had he had a musician's ear uh and and that's really what makes those string parts sing because he knew he knew how it would how that arrangement would shore up that song that composition by mccartney and it's, it really does sound about a million miles away from from theme from a summer place. It's really, it, it's yeah. it's so lush. I mean, that's the word that I kept on going through in my notes when I was yeah. when I was getting ready for this. I just kept on using you know his orchestrations all over just have this kind of lush kind of quality to them, and he he, he knows how to use the bass end uh, of, yeah. of of string instruments in particular to really. <laughs> bring it through and he does that in Eleanor Rigby too yeah and I think another really important point is it sounds like they're musicians playing it and that sounds funny to say but around that time you know strings were almost like a texture almost a dehumanized texture that you would add to a song you know to you know to kind of beef it up or whatever it is but the strings on yesterday are they sound like musicians in a room playing that that those parts it's hard to describe what I what I you know exactly what I mean by that. It's just it sounds very human, um, and uh, I, I think again that's down to uh, Martin's ear and his his uh, talent for arranging as well. No, it's true. Well, Rob, why don't we hear your clip now? Do you so? Do you want to set this up at all? Yeah, I'll set that up. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of talk about all the improvisations he made in the studio, particularly with, you know, Strawberry Fields Forever, which was in two keys, and he had to figure out how to make them work, and A Day in the Life, which you've heard a million times by now. But the achievement that I think really uh, stands out, for me anyway, is uh, George Harrison's uh, Within You, Without You. took a, a piece that was arguably one of the most revolutionary pieces on the Sgt. Pepper album, and he made it He made it sing. And he did it having to work with two different ways of approaching music entirely, the Western way and the, the Eastern way. Different structures, different approaches to music, different instruments, different mindsets from the musicians. And he, uh, he brought that together. He... he he bound those two worlds together, and that is an incredible achievement. George Harrison had uh, hired uh, some Indian musicians to come into the studio uh, to lay down their parts. So there was Indian uh, uh, instruments, uh, and those parts were laid down. Uh, Harrison put down a bit of uh, acoustic guitar. Actually, he played sitar after, but um, then Martin heard that and he wrote a string part for it for, I don't remember how many violins and violins and cellos, basically. <clears throat> so 
somehow he took a, a Western form and, and married it to an Eastern form, and it sounds completely seamless. And it's fascinating to me listening to that clip because you have, it's almost like call and response between the sitars and the violas. It's, 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 it's fascinating. It's amazing. And the whole call and response thing is very much a part of pop music. So what basically what was created was a hybrid between a pop song uh, and an Indian uh, classical piece. Basically, that, that track for me, is one of Martin's uh, greatest achievements. It's interesting because so much of what we're talking about in terms of what George Martin brought to the Beatles is is about fusion. It's about taking uh, a Western form like strings and adding it to an Eastern form like sitars or <laughs> or taking two things in two different keys in Strawberry Fields and bringing them together in right. two different tempos. Do you think that fusion is one of those sort of things that, that he sort of had in his toolkit, figuring out how I can sort of jerry-rig this to this? I, I don't know if it was in his toolkit. Uh, I don't know if he had to kind of invent his toolkit as he went along. That's that's one of the great things about him. The, the Beatles just said, what if we did this? And then Martin would have to come up with, with a way to, to, to do that. And, you know, it seems like nine times out of ten, or even ten times out of ten, he was able to do that. So I, I think his, his talent there was being able to make the tools he needed uh, when he was asked. You know, I, I'm not sure they were, they were ever laying around. They were, you know, he had to invent them. It's interesting because one of the sort of innovations he made, especially in the mid to late 60s with the Beatles, was with, you know, working with tape and working with playing back and stuff like that. And and mm -hmm. I was when I was doing research for, for this segment, I found that with when he was with Parlophone in, in late 50s, he had worked with the BBC Radiophonic Workshop who did the theme song to Doctor Who, but but they were also people that worked with tape all the time. And it's interesting to me that he had just this ability to sort of watch how people did things and then store that in his mind and then go back and say, well, gee, we could probably do a technique like this to go do this. He had that sort of magpie mind for picking up all sorts of different disparate things. Yeah, and I think, too, he was as curious as his uh, clients were. You know, he was. He, I think he was a curious man. He wanted to see if certain things would work. I think that's one of the reasons why he was so open-minded, because he was curious. You know, he wanted to see, uh, you know, if we tried this or this recording technique or that recording technique or, oh, that's a really interesting idea, guys. You know, why don't we try it this way? It, there's lots of stories about, about him sort of interacting with, with the Beatles in that way, you know, just kind of trying to egging each other along and trying to, to push the envelope. You know, as they were as they were working. Now, now of course, uh, by the end of the mid to the end of the '60s, you know, they took the clocks off the wall you know, when it was a Beatles session. You know, so they had this <laughs> huge canvas, right? And I think that's another another aspect of that. I mean, a lot of that came down to the money, of course, um, but uh, you know, all of those things culminated into a bunch of curious people trying to see what they could do and and uh, trying to see how far they could push things. So, what would be your favorite George Martin produced piece? It's hard to choose. It's it's really hard to choose. I mean, uh, maybe the second side of uh, Abbey Road. Maybe if if I if pushed, I'd I'd say that 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 was probably my probably my my favorite uh, piece that kind of touches me, I guess, the most.
You know, the fact that he took basically song fragments and he made it into a cohesive whole. And all those parts just seemed to, you know, it, it made sense for them to live together, you know, after he was done. You know, really they, what they were were just fragments. And he took them and he made it into, you know, almost half of a, half of a record, you know, which is, it's amazing. It's funny, when I was thinking about this today, you know, when I trying to figure out how he'd answer this question, the one song that kept on coming back to me is an unusual one. It is a deep cut. We have mm -hmm. to use our, you know, quote of using the word deep, deep oh, cut yeah. in this. Gotta Absolutely. have that in there. <laughs> it's Good Night from White Album. And I love, mm -hmm. I love that piece, first of all, because it really uses Ringo's singing to great effect. But the song mm -hmm. is so lushly constructed. And it, it is a perfect pastiche of a sort of 1940s Ray Noble and his orchestra kind of kind of piece. Yeah, but yeah. it's 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 soaked in, in nostalgia. It, isn't it, it is. That piece? But it, it but it doesn't feel like it's a parody. And it does feel like it's trying a little bit something new in some ways, too, uh, which is the other thing I really like about yeah. it. It has a kind of it's it's like yesterday, what you were saying in that, you know, it could have gone south very quickly. And it doesn't. It doesn't feel like it's trying to do something with a wink and a nod. It's doing kind of a love letter to that kind of style of music. And, and it's a really glorious end to the album and for me in many ways. Yeah, for, for them, it would have been uh, a, a call back to their childhood, to their early childhood, that type of sound. Yeah, exactly. Right. So uh, and and Martin was you know a full grown man at that time, so he knew all yeah. about that. Uh, you know that's an, that's another thing. They were of different generations, so he kind of understood that mindset. I think too, probably enabled that song to sound the way it does. I guess a, a, a sort of hard question to close it off with. Uh oh, where do you, where do you think George Martin's influence is still seen in popular music today? I think the. Uh, the, the influence that he had primarily was the the role of the of the producer uh, what we talked about slightly earlier the uh, the idea of who the producer was and the idea also of letting the artists lead the the record upon which their name would appear uh, he broke down the walls a little bit you know and he took his own musicianship into the role he listened and trusted uh, his clients and uh, he was concerned mainly with making great records. I think that was the thing. I mean, he wasn't motivated by fame and fortune. He could have been. Like, he could have done what a lot of producers uh, in the early, in the 50s and early 60s did, which was take uh, credits, uh, writing credits off the stuff that they produced. You know, he didn't do that. He could have, but he didn't. You know, I think he was just primarily concerned with making great records. And I think in terms of his influence and him as a role model to other people doing that job. I, I think that's probably the best example. I guess for me, I was thinking about this. The one example I kept coming back to was Adele. I think uh, I think in the production on her past couple of albums, I think have a similar kind of aesthetic to it. To, yeah. To what to what Martin had, yeah. and I think it had a similar kind of kind of magpie approach to it, saying, "Well, why don't we try this with this, and why don't we try this with this?" And, I, and, I, and that kind of experimentation to the end of of 
making the artist sound better yeah. uh, rather than experimentation for its own sake. Yeah, and hearkening back to other eras and things like that, I, I think that's... Yeah. That, yeah, that's another big, big part of that for sure. I mean, George Martin was the first kind of, as you say, he was the first kind of record producer I ever knew. Um, yeah. And to a certain extent, that was that was the complete Beatles that partially did that, because in the absence of any of the Beatles being interviewed in the complete Beatles, mm -hmm. he was he was representing the Beatles. Yes, um, that's true. Yeah, I really got to know him mostly through through the complete Beatles. And, you know, I remember when we watched the complete Beatles together for the first time, your comment was that man speaks the Queens English. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you remember which, that. Which actually, yeah. to, if you know anything about his background, I mean, his, he was a working class guy. Um, and he went, he went to, uh, uh, he went into the RAF, you know, and that's how they talked in the RAF. So he just learned the lingo and it kind of stuck with him, you know? So, uh, as, and as, at his sort of, uh, standoffish as he might seem uh, I actually think his standoffishness actually helped um, because he was able to uh, not be in that sort of not be in the inner circle of the Beatles in a social sense uh, he was able to kind of have a bit of uh, perspective and because he was kind yeah. of an outsider and he didn't grow his hair long and wear love beads and stuff like that he kept his hair short he wore a tie you know he's a professional uh, and I think that really helped him as well. You know, he was still the producer at the end of the day. You know, as 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 much as he let his clients lead, he was still the producer and still in charge in that respect. I think he sort of redefined what in charge actually means. You know, I think that's another strength that he had. It's true. And he didn't have that kind of... Uh... He didn't get himself embroiled in the actual politics of the band. You know, if he was doing a piece for, for George, he would, you know, do something like what he did with Within You, Without mm -hmm. You, as you, as, as you point out. Whereas, you know, if he was doing a piece for John, he would, you know, he would he would figure out what was the best thing that Strawberry Fields Forever needed right. to make this conundrum that John had yep. work. It was kind of an epitome of professionalism. Yeah, I think that really helped. I think that really helped to make the records better. His, his balancing out the 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 sort of charge of making a good record with listening to other people's ideas and i think i don't think that's an easy balance for a lot of people to strike and i think that brings us to a close so if you have any comments drop us a line at beatles at gemgeek or rarebug.com and we'll be back in a few weeks to talk about the beatles fourth album beatles for sale in the meantime thank you very much rob jones thank you graham i'm graham burke we'll see you next time on a year with the beatles it's full. 